on the air and heard on the web. This is KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls. Broadcasting this hour, it's the City Club of Idaho Falls Forum. This evening's keynote speaker is Dr. James Weatherby, Emeritus Professor at Boise State University and Public Policy Consultant. The Politics and Public Policy Implications of the Coming Election, this hour on the City Club of Idaho Falls Forum, airing the final Monday of each month at 7 p.m., right here on KISU. Please welcome the moderator for today's forum, John Hansen. It's a pleasure to be here to welcome you uh, to our speaker. Uh, you might remember our last luncheon meeting. Uh, Tim Hopkins demonstrated his ability to leap on the stage from the front. Uh, being a little older and I hope wiser and having invested in a new hip, you notice I took the more conventional route. We'll see what Dr. Weatherby does. I'm uh, particularly pleased to be able to introduce our speaker. Jim Weatherby is an old friend of mine. I've known him, respected him, admired him for many, many years, and it's a pleasure for me to be a part of the program in which he presents. <clears throat> and his appearance here is most, most timely. The election takes place in just 19 days. And uh, I know we're all perplexed. There are enormous amounts of money have been pumped into the election process. Uh, we see a blitz of advertisements, pamphlets, <clears throat> robocalls, uh, high level of negativity and uh, partisanship in our politics today. And it is confusing for us voters to try to sort through all of this and try to understand what the real issues are, what the candidates stand for, not just what there's in the brochure, but what they really stand for and also what these changes are that seem to be swirling around in the political arena uh, today that are so hard to fathom. <clears throat> Our speaker today is by background and experience uniquely qualified to speak to the uh, topic of today's forum, the politics and implications of the, of the 2010 election. <clears throat> At, and I'll leave some things out, I'm sure, Jim, bear with me. Boise State University, he was director of the Public Policy Center director of the Social Science Research Center and professor for the Department of Public Policy and Administration until his recent retirement. He is a professor emeritus at BSU and a public policy consultant. As you might remember, you've seen him, I'm sure, he's a regular political analyst for KTVB Channel 7 in Boise and also Idaho Public TV. He covers the Idaho reports uh, on a regular basis. He's a co-author of 12 or two books, and his wife just advises me that uh, he's in the process of writing another one. The two books are The Urban West, Managing Growth and Decline and Also Governing Idaho. He's written numerous manuals on state and local government and conducted workshops for state and local officials for over 35 years. His perspective has been sought by the print and broadcast media throughout the state of Idaho, and uh, Jim has been introduced or interviewed, excuse me, by most of the major newspapers in the United States. He's the former director of the Association of Idaho Cities, has served on the faculty of the University of Idaho and Northwest Nazarene College, University, excuse me, was college when I lived in Boise. <laughs> uh, he currently serves on the board of directors of the Idaho Tax Commission, Sage Community Resources, and the City Club of Boise. In fact, the City Club of Boise was instrumental in helping us get started in Idaho Falls. We do appreciate that. His wife, Dana, would you please stand? 
is here. We're delighted. Many of us have known Dana for a long time. She's the former director of legal education for the state bar and associate director of the Idaho Law Foundation, recently retired. They have a daughter, son, and daughter-in-law and a grandson who also live in Boise. Dr. Weatherby's ability to analyze public policy issues has always been a valuable asset to legislators and other state and local officials. <clears throat> Our speaker today is highly regarded by persons on both sides of the political aisle for his honest, objective, nonpartisan approach in helping them understand the issues they deal with. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. James Weatherby. Okay, so I used the stairs and made it here very nicely, thank you. It's good to see so many people here today. Uh, a number of familiar faces in city government in Rigby, uh, Rexburg, uh, Idaho Falls, a number of current and former legislators. Uh, it's a privilege to talk to you here at the City Club of Idaho Falls, and I congratulate you on your coup and having the first gubernatorial debate during this uh, election season. There is much to talk about with respect to politics in Idaho, politics in the nation. I'll touch a little bit on the national, but primarily want to look at the state of Idaho and where we are here today and the context in which our politics is being carried out. Idaho is Republican, conservative, and sectional. Anyone disagree with that? We know it's Republican, it's a one-party state. We have the most Republican legislature in the country. Most of our locally elected officials who run on partisan ballots are Republican. But you know, there is such a thing as the public policy surveys and other surveys that have been done around this state that indicate that never have I seen in any public policy survey that's been done that indicated that a majority of Idahoans identify themselves as being Republican. Maybe 40, 45 percent, but never 50 or more. 20 percent identify themselves generally as Democrats, 30 percent as independence. So in terms of elected officials, very heavily oriented to the Republican Party, but there is, I think, and I think what Phil Batt said in the 1990s still holds true to some degree, and that is the attachment of Idahoans to party is weak. And there is and can be the ebb and flow in politics, but Idaho is Republican? Granted. Idaho is conservative. Anyone disagree with that? Well, I have the microphone. You can't disagree with me on that. The political spectrum in Idaho is shifting even farther to the right, it seems to me, and we'll talk about that when we get into a discussion of this upcoming session of the Idaho legislature. Democrats, over the years, if you look at the history of Idaho politics, Many of the uh, leading members of the uh, Idaho legislature, Democratic Party, sirloin roll, 
were conservative. And sometimes, Bob Smiley, when he served as governor in the 1950s and 60s, complained about those wool hat Democrats who were far too conservative and ran uh, their own projections and their own budget proposals. So we are Republican, we are conservative, and we are sectional, dare I remind you. And I get confused sometimes when I'm in Idaho Falls, whether we are in eastern Idaho or southeastern Idaho. I'm not confused when I'm in the panhandle. I think that's northern Idaho, though many claim it's north Idaho, though I think that has secessionist connotations to it and won't recognize it, though once having lived there and gone to the University of Idaho, I understand that to a degree. As far as I know, Idaho is the only state that has three capitals, Salt Lake City, Utah, Spokane, Washington, and Boise, Idaho. Now, I don't say that much in northern Idaho anymore. They do take exception to that. Those in the Coeur d'Alene Post Falls area and their relationship with Spokane, which seems to have shrunk, but we won't get into that. My wife uh, indicated I'm working on a book, and it's another book on western cities. So. If I had the time, I'd talk to you about the politics of Spokane and Salt Lake City and Reno and Boise and elsewhere. But you wanted to hear about 2010 and the partisan politics that we're dealing with here today. But our state is sectional, and it breaks down along sectional lines. I can remember more than once Senator Bart Davis talking on Idaho reports about the Treasure Valley legislators who were so willing to support the Garvey program, the bonding program to provide capital improvements in the Treasure Valley, but who would not vote for a gas tax and a registration fee increase for the rest of the state. We do clash from time to time on higher education politics, but we don't have the luxury today to talk about that. In terms of a couple of other things on context, and one that I don't have to spend a lot of time on because we've all experienced and struggled with it, and that is the economy. I think one of the quotes that I hear, I remember most coming out of the Idaho legislature last year, and particularly from the Joint Finance Appropriation Committee members is, we find ourselves here. The economy, many would say, drove budget decisions in this last legislative session. And to one degree or another, certainly they did in the worst uh, recession that we've experienced, I think, uh, in, our, in our lifetime. This is a midterm election. What does that mean? It means that turnout is usually lower. In a midterm election, it means the president party usually loses seats in Congress. There is an anticipation that there will be a new Speaker of the House. Am I predicting now? Perhaps that there will be a new Speaker of the House. And the scenario may go something like this, that it will not be Nancy Pelosi, but the deciding vote will be cast by Walt Minnick, Democrat from Idaho. And goodness knows who he might vote for for Speaker of the House, if indeed that is his opportunity. I know I'm here in the second district, and you know nothing about the first congressional district race, or do you? and how much focus there is on this race by this endangered species, Walt Minnick, 
a Democrat who barely defeated Bill Sally by about 4,000 votes two years ago and has had a target on him ever since. A blue dog Democrat who needs to get red votes again in Idaho to be reelected. But this is one interesting race where indeed the House of Representatives might be taken over by the Republican Party, but there is a good chance that a Democrat will win re-election in the first district in what may be a Republican way. There are some who are saying that 2010 is much like 1994, when uh, Newt Gingrich became Speaker of the House, where there was a wave swept through Idaho. In 1994, through much of the campaign for governor, we were going to elect Larry Echohawk governor and we were going to elect Mike Burkett Attorney General. That didn't happen. Democrats suffered significant and serious losses throughout the state of Idaho. Will that happen again in 2010? The Democrats are saying, no, we're coming back. That the Republicans have peaked. Well, check your historical record. The Democrats said that about a month out in 1994 as well. It will be interesting to watch in terms of our politics and the relationship between a Speaker Boehner with President Obama and what indeed can be accomplished. I don't know whether there's going to be a majority, read, majority leader read there in that equation or not, but that indeed will be interesting to follow as we move forward. So, we have the race for governor. Butch Otter entering and completing his first term in office, having pretty much a mixed record, having great difficulty. One of the interesting uh, developments that comes out of the Capitol in Boise is that all these Republicans don't get along with each other. We talk about a one-party system, but maybe it's a three-party system. That's within the Republican Party, and then we can talk about the Democrats and, and others. Uh, there is a fracture, and maybe it's even more pronounced now than it was before, so that it's not just simply a matter of this Republican governor proposing and the legislature accepting and supporting his proposals. Look at his proposals for a gas tax increase and registration fee increase. He got nowhere with that on one of his signature issues. He was successful in passing the grocery tax credit, which I think was one of the better proposals I've seen. Unfortunately, neither the Democrats or the Republicans in the legislature agreed with the very narrowly focused, fiscally responsible proposal that uh, governor Otter initially proposed. But here he is, the incumbent governor in a bad economy, running for re-election with a mixed record. He ought to be in trouble, shouldn't he? He would be in most states. Governors typically are punished when the economy is down. And to a degree that's fair because they take credit for any great increases in the economy and any positive movement in the economy. But now we are told by the latest poll that there is a significant difference between the Democratic and Republican candidates for governor. Even though Governor Otter is below 50%, uh, he at this point I think would be favored to be uh, reelected. 
even though there are 20% who are undecided and 44% of those respondents who have an unfavorable view of our current governor. His principal challenger, because I say principal because there are three others in the race, Janet Kemp, former state representative running as an independent, uh, Mr. Ted Dunlap, who is running as a libertarian candidate and a one-issue candidate, guess his issue, pro-life. That's it, that's his name. Though I did see Marvin Richardson four years ago wearing a Richardson for governor button, so I'm a little confused on his name, but we won't go into a pro-life story of which I have many. Keith Allred, Democratic candidate for governor, who once he announced for the governorship then was attacked as to whether or not he was le legitimately a nonpartisan. Only in Idaho would you have that kind of a lead story when a Democratic candidate announced for governor. Is he a real nonpartisan? Is he an independent? Is he a Democrat? Leader of the common interests, uh, Keith Allred, proposes that if he becomes governor, he will take the major issues before us, and one of it is revenue, and the need for revenue in this upcoming legislative session. And he will identify, through a random process, a thousand citizens in each of our 35 legislative districts who will study an issue, for example, sales tax exemptions, and whether or not some of them should be removed to move toward, as he has explained it, a revenue-neutral examination of sales tax exemptions and a lowering of our high uh, income tax rate. Will this kind of model, this common interest model, uh, play with Idaho citizens? Stay tuned. The races join. You no doubt have, you saw the debate between the major contestants here in Idaho Falls. You've seen it on the airwaves. There are yet one more debate. Uh, may I plug Idaho Public Television on October uh, 28th. Allred says that Otter is too beholden to special interest groups. It's time to take a more balanced uh, public policy approach. Now, to the Idaho legislature. Changes have come. Idahoans still don't understand that in a one-party state, I know I'm confusing you because I just said how diverse we were in terms of, of the electorate, but given the ability of the Republican Party to get out the vote and their organizational activities and other reasons we can talk about why they are so significant, they are the dominant party, and I, like Stan Olson, have lost my train of thought. I can remember him speaking to the Rotary Club in Boise a couple of weeks ago. He was there with uh, Tom Luna, his opponent for superintendent of public instruction, and Stan Olson looked at him and I said, I've forgotten my train of thought. What, you, what did you just say? And Luna said, I just said I was doing a good job. <laughs> So what will happen in this upcoming uh, legislative race? The Democrats say they may pick up four seats. Oh, now I've regained my train of thought, and that is the primary. 
the primary election, are you with me? The primary election is the most significant election when it comes to the legislature uh, in this state and indeed in this last uh, primary election four uh, Republican senators were defeated by more conservative opponents. You have to be careful in Idaho that use the term conservative uh, rather than moderate or centrist. You use conservative or extra conservative. These candidates were defeated by more conservative candidates, which means possibly that given this new legislative session that the Senate will become more conservative than it has been, that it will look more like the House, which will be disappointing to me as an observer. I love these fights back and forth between the House and Senate. And for some reason, maybe that's a, a good exercise. Maybe there will be greater unanimity in this legislature coming up. Now, as to the general election that I just dissed, let me say this. Democrats' fond hope is they can pick up four seats. Typically, Democrats pick up seats in midterm elections, often seats that they've lost during the presidential election when there is a higher turnout. The fond hope of Republicans is that they will pick up six to eight seats. What you can derive from all of this is that in 2011 legislative session, there will be a veto-proof legislature and they will be faced with one of the most difficult problems in recent legislative history. And the fond hope of some is that the 2011 legislative session will be as bad as the 2010 legislative session and not worse. In 2011, this legislature will be faced with possibly 300 to 400 million dollar hole in basically a 2.3 billion dollar budget. And how will that be closed? Will revenues be raised? Will there be a tax increase? Well, not in the first four or five months of this session, there won't. But we don't know how long it will go into June or July. The reserves are basically gone. The hated federal stimulus monies that we have gladly spent in Idaho will be gone. And before that, legislature will be tough choices in terms of further cutting services that have already been cut, remind you of the campaigns of Keith Allred uh, for governor and Stan Olson for public superintendent of public instruction, and I'm sure a lot of Democratic legislative candidates, that this legislature and governor for the first time in history cut public education, cut it by 7.5% or $128.5 million. And that may historically be true, though I, I hold out historically to be historically accurate that when Governor Lynn Jordan in the 1950s closed the Lewis Clark Normal School and Albion in the Magic Valley, that may have had a major negative effect on public education as well. But so far I'm not winning that, uh, that debate. So we'll say, I will accept 
that the first public education cut occurred last year? Where will we go in terms of further cuts? Or will be, there be revenue increases? By looking at the $1.75 billion of sales tax exemptions that were put in place, Governor Otter, you said 66 last night, 65 in our greatest legislative session. Will we have a, revi a re reviewing of that and increasing and removing some of those exemptions that will free up some revenues to be available to protect services? Will tax auditors be added to the tax commission? Will we tax internet sales? I'm not sure we'll do any of those things. It seems to me we will do like most states have done around the country at some point. I don't know when it will be, in 2011, 2012, at some point the sales tax rate will be increased. That is the historical record on a very and an ever-narrowing sales tax base upon a sales tax that was first conceived and adopted in the 1930s is an outmoded tax in many respects in that services are not covered, that the tax rate will be increased, and it's been done. It's tough to do in a down economy in uh, Arizona. Arizona is known for the immigration legislation. Few understand that Arizona voters this year voted for a sales tax increase for three years to address their budget problem. Uh, that may indeed happen in this one year or so years in this legislative session. Now I have, am I running out of time, John? You're fine. Okay, how much more time do I have? Five. Five minutes. Oh, there's so much to cover. <laughs> we have the first congressional district race. We don't have a race in the second congressional district, as I understand, unless I'm confused. Mike Simpson is running for Congress. There is an independent candidate, Mr. Chad, running for, for Congress, and the Democratic candidate, as I understand it, has endorsed Mike Simpson for uh, re-election. The only other thing I would say in terms of congressional or senatorial races, uh, I saw a very spirited contest, debate on Idaho Public Television, a couple of nights ago, a Democratic candidate for the Senate, Tom Sullivan, who is sitting down here against uh, incumbent Senator uh, Mike Crapo. I would uh, encourage you to watch come next Tuesday night on, I think it's KIFI television, it's a statewide broadcast where they will again uh, debate. And certainly there are major issues before us, and uh, those are issues that should be addressed, unlike the focus so much in the first congressional district on immigration and some other issues that uh, are of importance. But when you see all of the issues that face Congress in terms of our 
debts, in terms of war, our two wars, there is much to be discussed and debated, so I invite you to tune into that. I would now be happy to try to uh, evade all of your questions as best I can. Hopefully the questions will give you a chance to expand on what you wanted to say anyway. Um, I probably will, one way or another. Yeah, right. Here's our first question. Idaho is currently litigating a GOP-backed closed primary election proposal. California has an open primary proposition on its November ballot. Would you please comment on the effects of closed and open primaries on our election process? Uh, thank you. Uh, excellent question. And I mean that. Sometimes when people say excellent question, they're fumbling to think of the, the first, part of, first part of the answer. And if I were to continue to recover here, my next thought would be, what's going on in Boise right now? Federal District Judge Lynn Windmill is hearing a uh, suit against the Secretary of State, uh, Ben Yusursa, on whether or not we will continue with an open primary in Idaho, which uh, some Republicans say is a violation of their constitutional right of freedom of association. They don't want these Democrats invading their primary. I don't know what these Democrats do who invade their primary, whether they vote for the strongest candidate or the weakest candidate, but that's, that's just a footnote to this discussion. But we, what we have before us is a question about the future of the open primary in Idaho, where anyone can go in, any registered voter, and vote in any primary they choose. Now, it's interesting to me that this dominant party, this Republican party, uh, wants to change the rules. Usually the winners don't want to change the rules, but they want to change the rules in this regard, and they want to have a closed system where I'm giving an unbiased analysis here. A closed system whereby, and, and if indeed uh, they succeed in this suit, it would depend then upon what kind of legislation is, is drafted, but let's assume it's a pure closed primary, then you or I going to vote in a primary would have to be either a registered Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or whatever the party is to be able to vote within that party's primary. Or another way to look at it, it could be the legislation would be devised as such that you would have to go down and declare publicly that you're going to vote in the Democrat, Republican, or Libertarian party primary. Remember when I talked about this being a Republican state and all the public policy surveys that Boise State University have done and others, 30% of Idahoans are independent. I think that's a concern of a lot of people. What would independents do if indeed we had a closed primary system? Indeed, I think what it would mean is, and I know that's hard to believe, but it could be that we might be electing in the primary more liberal Democrats and more conservative Republicans. One of our listeners has uh, reminded us that Helen McKinney just recently passed away, and she was the last successful write-in candidate for the legislature. Phil Hart, who is experiencing uh, some tax problems, as we're all familiar with, 
is being challenged by a write-in candidate up north. How do you see that playing out? It's very, it's, uh, it's very difficult uh, to win a write-in election in a general election. Uh, there would, it would require resources getting that name out. Uh, one advantage I think we have in Idaho, uh, as opposed to, for example, Lisa Murkowski running for the United States Senate on a write-in in, in Alaska, under the rules in Alaska, not only do they need have to write in Murkowski's name, they have to fill out the oval, and if they don't fill out the oval on the bubble sheet, it won't be counted. As I understand it, right in, in Idaho, we, we more liberally determine the intent of the voter. So the bar is not quite as high, but I think it's, I think it's very difficult, though the, the allegations and the uh, stories that are coming out about uh, Representative Hart are indeed uh, quite sensational, and uh, this could be an interesting final outcome. For many years, you've been actively involved in polling, analyzing survey data, polling data, <clears throat> and on these public policy issues. As you reflect on those trends that you've uh, watched over the years, what, what now do you see that troubles you the most, and what gives you the most encouragement? in terms of political trends in Idaho? Let me, let me just focus in on one thing that, uh, one result in this last poll that I had nothing to do with, with conducting, it was done by the seven newspapers of this state. It was Mason Dixon who did the polling. They do a lot of polling over the country for, for many years. And that was the, the finding that a majority of respondents to that poll said that the funding for a higher education was either too high or about right, about 56% of the people. And I find that a, a disturbing result. Coming on the heels of, I believe the number is about a 20% cut to public education. You know, you hear about the 7.5% cut to education. When we talk about education in this state, we typically know that we're talking about K through 12, but there is higher education and there is a K through uh, 16 system. Uh, more work needs to be done, I think, in people understanding the importance of higher education and its relationship to economic development that, that uh, emphasis should be made. The importance of higher education to uh, an informed, educated citizenry. The importance of higher education to individuals being a product of a liberal arts education. I see some value in education in itself without tying it to economic development, but at least making that case in terms of economic development, the importance of it. Uh, as indicated to you earlier, working on revising a book, Stephanie Witt and I, who did it some 20 years ago. I think of Pueblo, Colorado, one city that we follow closely and their economic development trials and their struggles to maintain uh, their city and the prominent role over the last 20 or 25 years that both the community college and the university have played in their aggressive economic development programs. That should be true in Idaho as well, and people should understand the importance of higher education. 
Modifying the Idaho sales tax, you talked about the base narrowing over the years since it was passed in, I think, 1965. <clears throat> a lot of, an issue in the, in the gubernatorial campaign about that, and it's come up a lot of times. It came up when I was in the legislature. One of our listeners wants to know if you see any prospect that that might be tackled, that issue might be tackled put in uh, services as a taxable item and, and modify some of the exemptions to make it a more fair and balanced and a broader tax. There is, there is more discussion about it now than there has been. I see in some of the reporting around the state uh, there are more legislators who are saying today that they might be open to, to that discussion. But the question is, if you look at all these exemptions, and I, I think there is an argument for removing some of them, there is an argument for taxing services, but whose services? Who will bear the burden? There was a strong argument made and legislation proposed by one of the most, if not the most popular governors in our recent history, Cecil Andrus, in 1994. We've been talking about how most of our sales in this state have escaped the sales tax for decades. And in principle, people would say we ought to do something about the sales tax exemptions. But doing that means that we are going to create a new set of taxpayers. Somebody's going to have to pay more taxes if these exemptions are removed in terms of individual liability. You may reduce an overall income tax rate, but ultimately the individual liability, there will be a tax increase. And I think what you get here is a conflict between those who in principle say something ought to be done about this, as opposed to the intense minority who is going to be taxed who will kill the legislation. And for that reason, uh, I, I think ultimately, as they've done in other states, it's going to be a rate increase over this outmoded base. As a member of the Board of <coughs> tax, State Tax Commission, uh, do, you, uh, do you think we could raise, and how much could we raise additional revenues if we hired more auditors? If we did? Hire more auditors to collect uh, taxes. Not raise taxes, but just collect what, what is due now. Okay, in, in answering that, let me clarify, I'm, I'm a member of the board of the Tax Foundation, a, oh. a private group and, and not, uh, not the Tax Commission. Uh, and so I, I can't really tell you what that number will be. I've heard it's maybe 50 or 60 million dollars, but there is the argument that Keith Allred is making, the Democratic candidate for governor, that we could add some 29 auditors to the State Tax Commission. And we could go after those who are either uh, under-reporting uh, income or over-reporting their expenses. And uh, we could make a step toward uh, addressing that uh, hole in, in our system. There are others who don't like the intrusion of government and are concerned about taxpayers being harassed. So that's, that's a good point, but uh, I suspect that might be an issue that uh, might have some resonance uh, in May or June of the next legislative session. As you've noted, the funding for education has been cut dramatically in the last few years, higher ed particularly, and the public ed too. 
<clears throat> and uh, we hear from some of our legislators that when the economy recovers, and we know it will, we'll restore those cuts in education. We hear some of the leadership in the House saying we need to cut taxes further, which will win when the economy does recover, in your opinion. It's hard for me to believe that these cuts will be restored. I just don't see the economy recovering uh, that quickly. Uh, as far as members of the House of Representatives are concerned who are talking about the need to cut taxes further, and certainly that argument is made in Idaho and around the country, if we're going to recover, we need to reduce uh, taxes. And the Democratic candidate for governor already his, himself is saying that our income taxes uh, are, are too high. Uh, there are a number, I think, in, in the House of Representatives who have never gotten over the fact that in 2003 they were rolled on the proposal to raise the sales tax uh, one cent to address the financial problems they have here have now and believe that uh, there is too much money uh, allocated to education that government is too big in in Idaho uh, given given that attitude and the fact that revenue raising proposals come from the House of Representatives I think it's going to be very difficult to to address that issue would you care to comment on the your perspective on the implications of the recent Supreme Court case Citizens United which has overturned a lot of precedent that had limitations on corporate uh, contributions and campaigns. We're seeing that effect in, in Idaho, though it's rather ironic. Uh, as a result of this case and the ability of corporations to uh, contribute during the, uh, the election cycle, there is a lot of money flowing uh, throughout the country attacking uh, Democratic candidates for office. Though in Idaho, as I understand it, uh, there is a U.S. Chamber ad supporting uh, Congressman Walt Minnick. My great concern about this Supreme Court decision is that at this point, there is a lot of money flowing all around the country, and we don't know where the money is coming from. There is no transparency whatsoever. The corporations are saying, uh, we don't want the revelation because we're concerned about the recrimination. But I think as a voter, we ought, ought to have the right to know where that money is coming from. And it's a lot of money. Though he who is without sin may cast the first stone. Democrats were awash in money two years ago. Well, one among us is very discouraged, Dr. Weatherby. <clears throat> he says if Idaho, especially Eastern Idaho, was so Republican, if you disagree with that point of view, why vote at all? If Eastern Idaho is so Republican, why vote at all? Well, it has not always been so, and there have been Democratic victories from election to election. I say, and I say it as an independent, and uh, maybe this is a cop-out in a way, but I can say it as an independent, you know, there are, there are good candidates running Democrat, Republican, Independent. And it may not always be true that you can elect a Democrat as a member of the legislature or for your county commission. But you can become involved in campaigns and determine what are the real 
policy positions of an individual and influence that outcome. I have seen over the years people change. Throw out the partisanship for just a minute. I know I introduced it, but I have seen people change and grow in office from the city level to the legislative level. So one party is not well represented in a particular area. That doesn't mean that there aren't serious concerns about issues that would be important to you, that you can find your candidate and you can support that candidate maybe without consideration to partisanship. There once was in the Idaho legislature, and I'll give you a little indication of my centrist bias, I guess, a center in the House and Senate. There used to be what they called the steelhead coalition of conservative Democrats and moderate Republicans who got the job done, who are more about problem solvings than ideology. That's how we passed, I wasn't there, but that's how we passed the sales tax in 1965. Governor Smiley said leadership comes from the center. We don't have much of a center in the Idaho legislature anymore. We have too many people who are involved and in, in more concerned about their ideological purism than, than problem solving. Hopefully we can get away from that. Assume for a moment that uh, on the national level that the Democrats do hold a slim majority in the House and a majority in the Senate. What do you see happening in the next session? In terms of a continued paralysis, do uh, you see any chance of people starting to work together to solve some of these problems that cry out for solutions? No, I don't. I, I, I see it becoming even more polarized the minute the 2010 election is over. We start for 2012 in the presidential election year. Uh, in, in some ways, I really would feel it would be better for our politics if, uh, and don't tell anybody I said this, that if the uh, House of Representatives were controlled by the Republicans and uh, House Speaker John Boehner uh, actually had to take responsibility for a legislative program. And the re return to the days of the 1990s, uh, well, not all of the 1990s, but that perhaps there should be some uh, conversation and dialogue between the Republican Speaker of the House and the Democratic uh, President. Do you have an opinion on the Senate, U.S. Senate rule on cloture? that requires a 60, 60 votes to get anything moving through the uh, Senate for debate. Should that be changed or is there unintended consequences in that? There are unintended consequences. Uh, frankly, I would prefer that that not be uh, invoked and that there be the ability to cast a simple majority vote. But let me say those who criticize it in the United States Senate have used that as well. I do understand and I have the fear of the minority in being run roughshod over in the congressional process and it happens particularly in the Senate when a request for a unanimous request can quickly move a piece of legislation through the process. But as a Democrat, small d, I have problems with a 60 majority requirement.
Well, one among us would like your perspective on the Tea Party movement. Uh, just exactly what is it? Is it a flash in the pan? Is it going to uh, disappear? Is it going to have an impact on either or both parties? What, what's going on? And before I answer that, and I mean this sincerely, great questions. I really appreciate it. The Tea Party movement, and it should be noticed as a movement because there are so many Tea Party organizations, and let me illustrate that. When uh, the Tea Party, I believe it was the Tea Party Express this spring, endorsed Walt Minnick, the only Democrat they endorsed in the country, they endorsed Walt Minnick for, for re-election, and the Tea Party organization in Idaho, particularly in Boise, very upset about that endorsement, and they later endorsed Raul Labrador for uh, First District Congress. There are at least four or more Tea Party organizations. Will they go away? Well, if you had asked me a year ago, I probably would have said yes. Uh, no, they're not going to go away anytime soon that struck a, a raw chord, and I think historically you can see where there is an activist democratic uh, president, there is going to be a lot of pushback. The Tea Party organizations, and it's a conglomeration of groups who f fundamentally agree on the uh, proposition that they don't like either party, I say, Republicans, be careful what you wish for in terms of getting support of the Tea Party. They no doubt may turn on you in, in two years. The Tea Party uh, ad advocates that I'm aware of are very concerned about the debt and the, the deficits that we continue to run. I think those are mainstream opinions. When it comes to saying that the federal government should look should operate within the original com constitutional framework, I think is quite a, a different matter. But I think they will continue to be a force and watch very carefully. You know, they're saying that uh, the Christine O'Donnells from uh, Delaware and Joe Miller from Alaska and a number, and Sharon Angle from Nevada. Uh, that the Republicans made a mistake and they nominated these people and they're not going to be elected, well, let just, just be careful. Remember in the 1990s the name of Paula Hawkins from Florida? She wasn't going to be elected senator either. And Sharon Angle, who uh, is far right on most issues, raised what? In this last quarter, $14 million. The Tea Party movement is well-financed by some billionaires and by a lot of grassroots supporters. They are a force we may have within the Senate, a very purely ideological freshman class that's going to uh, raise a lot of ruckus uh, within the Republican Senate as well as in the Senate itself. You mentioned the $14 million that she raised. <clears throat> it recalls to my mind a recent op-ed piece by uh, Tom Friedman. He was lamenting about the, the state of affairs in our political scene today, and he characterized our system of political contributions as legalized bribery. How does that set with you? It doesn't set with me very well at all. Do you agree uh, with that? Uh, 
I don't want to agree with that. There is too much money, I think, within our system. But what can we do about it in terms of freedom of speech uh, protections? Uh, I, I am not, as a former lobbyist, I'm not going to attack lobbyists and lobbying organizations, but I am very concerned about the way, at, particularly at the congressional level, public policy is done and how bills are written by lobbying organizations and uh, to a degree influence the kind of money and influence that is in the Congress whereby every member of the House of Representatives, their, their marching orders day after they're elected is start raising money and it's all about fundraising. I don't know if I want to get into a talk about corruption, but let's just talk about the attention span of our members of Congress. Where is it? It's chasing the almighty dollar. Does that influence their vote? Of course it does. It has to in some, some way. And who gets the job done in terms of policy making? It's the staff and the lobbyists and the senators, if they can focus on, or members of Congress, one or two issues, that's probably about the best they can do. Otherwise, they're on the phone or they're <clears throat> out raising money. It is, uh, it is an issue that uh, we need to address and we have not. And Citizens United has even further emphasized the need to address this issue. But as I've said before, I uh, a plague on both your houses, Democrats and Republicans. Remember what Barack Obama as presidential candidate did two years ago. He, for, he did not take the public financing because he didn't want to be limited by the restrictions of public finance. Uh, neither party has clean hands here, but I still, I still not willing to use the term bribery. Maybe it's there, but uh, there is a little bit of optimism in this old professor. If you had a free hand in uh, attempting to make our sales tax more equitable and fair, where would you start with the exemptions? What would you do? What's number one, two, and three? Thank you for that question. <laughs> well, I have a number of lawyer friends here today, so would I say, uh, tax legal services. I, I'm not sure I'm prepared to answer. Let, let, let me uh, evade the question just a little bit or back into it. Where we could start, and it's going to require federal legislation, taxing internet sales, which are growing. Now, I know this is a good public-spirited audience and that when you make your purchases on Amazon and other sites, that you don't pay sales tax, but you report that as a, in the use tax column of your income tax filing. So that it's not an issue in this, in this particular. But those people in Boise, they never report it. Or what, what is it, the number? We, we, that generates about $100,000 or something like that. We certainly could look at internet sales, which is substantial and growing and the disadvantage that Main Street merchants and retailers suffer as a result of their having to collect the tax, but the internet sales are immune from the taxation and will continue to be until federal legislation is passed. 
seems that the first thing we could do is at least get to the table and become part of the streamlined sales tax system. We were once part of that discussion. We should continue to be part of that discussion. As far as the $1.75 billion uh, exemptions, some services ought to be taxed, and maybe they all should be. Well, but I'm not talking about removing the production exemptions and some of those major exemptions that exclude uh, double taxation. Well, for what it's worth, this has been discussed an awful lot, the uh, sales tax on services. And I believe, frankly, that if it were part of a comprehensive overall of the sales tax system, that it would be acceptable to lawyers, doctors, accountants, and others to be taxed on services. I think it's essential, and someday it's going to have to happen. We have time for one last question, and you may or may not want to touch this, but one among us would like to have, I think they've lost some money in the stock market, and they want to place some bets before the November election. Somebody's lost money in the stock market. They want, <laughs> hard to believe. Yes. But would like your, if you'd like to comment, uh, thoughts on the winners of the gubernatorial, the superintendent, and the first district Congress congressional race. Uh, my predictions? We're running out of time, aren't we? I think we are. Uh, well, the, the, the leader uh, for governor is uh, Governor Otter, and I would think you would have to guess that he's the odds-on favorite to, for re-election. Uh, the same would be true, I think, with uh, Tom Luna. Superintendent of Public Instruction has a significant lead. Both of them, according to Mason-Dixon, are under, under 50%, but uh, I think both would be re-elected and, and, and probably uh, the incumbent Democratic Congressman Walt Minnick will be re-elected, though I, I'm wondering what kind of wave is going to hit Idaho on election day, though, you know, there is one big difference between 94 and, and now, and that is we talk about election day as if that's when everybody votes. People are voting right now under our early voting system. Well, let's give a big hand to our speaker today for a most insightful, informative presentation. That concludes this hour of the City Club of Idaho Falls Forum, which airs the final Monday of every month right here on KISU at 7 p.m. Information about this forum and upcoming speakers, as well as an audio archive of all past forums at ifcityclub.com. Beat City Radio with Levi Montana Keller is coming up next. The time is now 8 o'clock.